So we are continuing our study of the Epistle of James that we began last spring. Um, uh, we um, covered last week um, verses 13 to 18 of chapter 3. And I'm going to start this morning by just doing a little bit of a review um, from, that, from that discussion last week. So let me read it to you and we can um, talk about it for a moment together before we jump into new material this morning. This is how James concluded his previous chapter. And this is important context actually for chapter 4 that we're going to begin to look at this morning. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? So we're talking about wisdom here, um, what wisdom looks like. Then he defines what that wisdom is. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And we talked some last week about the distinction there, um, how that's a different kind of perspective on what we often think of as someone who's wise. We often think of someone who's wise as someone who's well-learned, um, who has many uh, books, um, has read most of them. Um, uh, that is what we think about often we think about wisdom. Um, but James here defines wisdom as someone who, by his good conduct, so it's about action, it's about um, obedience um, to God and his law. By his, that's what good conduct is, right? Not good in some abstract sense, but good in relationship to the word of God, the law of God. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. That's a fascinating phrase, I think, when you think about what it means to be truly wise. Um, because what is a person who is meek doing? Who are they waiting for um, to care for them and to deliver them? They're waiting for the Lord, right? Um, this is, biblically speaking, what it means to be wise, is to be someone who is wise enough to not try to figure everything out on your own, and accomplish the kingdom of God with your own two hands, but to be patient and wait for God's vindication and his deliverance. Uh, but now James is going to set up a contrast, and this is the contrast that's going to bleed over into chapter 4, which we're going to look at in a moment. Um, it's going to, James is going to give us more detail about what this false wisdom, or we might say demonic wisdom, leads to. Uh, James says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, there's that contrast to the meekness of wisdom, Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. If your eyes are always roving elsewhere, if you are envious in your heart of the success that others have or the prosperity they seem to enjoy, if you have this ambition for your own self-interest to set yourselves above them, um, this is not the meekness of wisdom. This is something else, James says. If you have this kind of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is a kind of wisdom, but it is not the wisdom that comes down from above, from God, from heaven, from his dwelling place, his character. But it is earthly, right? It comes from the earth. It is uh, not that it's somehow physical, but that it's, it's human. It's human wisdom, um, and, and human in its fallen nature. It is unspiritual, which means that it is not of the Holy Spirit. It is opposed, actually, to the Holy Spirit, who embodies the meekness of wisdom as he proceeds from the Father and the Son and, and glorifies them. Um, but it is also demonic, um, James says. And that's really fascinating that, that this is a demonic kind of wisdom that is driven by bitter jealousy and, and selfish ambition. And this is, you know, of course, as you think about the activity of Satan in the scriptures, um, this does seem to be exactly what characterizes it, it is a kind of jealousy, a kind of desire um, to be uh, foremost, um, to have others, uh, to have power and control. This is what demonic um, wisdom is. Um, 
I think it's important to say that, right? Sometimes we think about the demonic as this sort of like, you know, um, scary occult people doing things in the darkness with goats or something, right? I mean, and maybe that is something that, you know, people do. Um, I don't know um, exactly, but that's not really where most of us are, are tempted to fall into the demonic, quote unquote, right? We're, we'll stay away from those places at midnight, you know, where they're doing things with goats. That's, that's not our problem. But we do struggle with this, right? This is actually more, I think, what, when we think about demonic, the kind of thing we should be thinking about is uh, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Um, this, is, this is satanic um, in the deepest sense of the word. And this is the kind of demonic activity that we are tempted to fall into, um, not the you know, sort of horror, scary stuff um, so much. And I think that's important to think about. And then James begins to describe what this will look like. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. There will be disorder in every vile practice. This is the manifestation, this is the fruit, we might say, of the demonic, earthly, unspiritual wisdom. Disorder in every vile practice. And we're going to see that in more detail in chapter 4 in just a moment, what that will look like potentially in a community. But the wisdom from above is first pure, right? It's pure in that it's godly, then peaceable. It leads to peace. It's gentle. It's open to reason. You can see how all these things are extrapolations of that definition of the meekness of wisdom, right? If you are, have meekness of wisdom, that's wisdom that is pure, that is peaceable, that is gentle, that is open to reason, that doesn't necessarily have all the answers in and of yourself. You listen to others. When you correct someone, you're kind and humble about it, right? You, you work for peace. You're full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. By those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, of course, Jesus tells us. Um, for they shall be called the sons of God. And that's, that's the contrast here. And really a lot of this, I think um, James is really working through somewhere on the Mount kind of stuff and seeking to apply it to the lives of his readers. Okay, so James has set up these two contrasts in this, those verses we looked at last week. Any questions about that before we jump into new stuff here in chapter 4? Okay, I think you're going to see pretty quickly how intimately connected this beginning of chapter 4 is um, to um, the end of chapter 3. Let me read this for us. I'm going to read through verse 12, and we'll go slowly through it. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or you, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me give us a brief outline of the argument I think James is making here, um, and then we'll walk through it. So 4.1a, right, James initiates this passage in the first half of verse 1 with this question. What is the root of the, the violence, the, the, the roiling, the evil within you? Where does it come from, right? That's the question he's asking. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Then he answers in 1b through 3, verse 3, the second half of 1 through 3, that part of the root of these things is their own sinful hearts, the sinful hearts of the men and women to whom he writes. This is part of where um, this, this demonic kind of activity, this jealousy, ambition that leads to violence and, and um, all these things um, comes some, partly from their own hearts. But then in verses 4 and 5, he also says, it is a kind of imitative wisdom of the world, of worldly wisdom. Um, this wisdom that emphasizes power and ambition um, and conniving and getting your way. Um, it is a participation in worldly wisdom. Then 6 to 10, um, James says, what is the solution, right? He doesn't just sort of leave his readers in this condemned, condemned state that they've been accused by the word of God um, as, as embodying this kind of bitter um, jealousy and selfish ambition that he has talked about. He says, what is the solution? And then he, he talks about it, right? Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, confession and repentance. And I think, I think this is a really interesting passage, not only in that how it identifies with, with, with um, insight, um, the way in which our hearts work and the way in which the, the darkness in our hearts and the way we give ourselves over to those things leads to violence, either physical violence or or violence in terms of our desires and what we want, uh, what we kind of foster in our minds. But then it also gives a way out. There's a real emphasis on grace here and on forgiveness. And what does it look like if you're caught in sin? If you're caught in this kind of sin or just sin in general, what does it look like um, to draw near to God in that place? And then in verses 11 and 12, James sort of underpins his whole argument. Why must you turn from this way of false, demonic, uh, earthly, unspiritual wisdom? Why must you humble yourself before God um, in your sin? Because there is a judge. There is one who will come and will enforce um, his law and his will. And you had you'd best live in light of that reality, that there is a lawgiver and a judge, um, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so let me, um, 
Let me just stop there. Any questions, just anything that this strikes before we jump in and go verse by verse through this little passage here? Yeah. Right. That's right. That's how the devil works. Yeah, of course, Lewis in Screwtape Letters talks about, you know, the two great errors of the devil is either believing he doesn't exist at all or that he's responsible for everything. Um, and, and we need to take the devil more seriously than that. And I think that in general, our culture doesn't take Satan seriously. And by that, I don't mean that we need to go around casting demons out of everyone. I mean that we need to be wise and understand the kind of things that Satan tries to do, the way in which... Um, he is undermining the kingdom of God. And I think it is through this way, temptations towards selfish ambition, bitter jealousy. These are the things that destroy Christian communities, those things that destroy Christian families. Um, and I think it's wise for us to think about that. Yeah, yeah, Todd. I seem to recall at the very beginning when we tried to set out the historical context, mm-hmm. Yes. Words like the rich. Yes. And that taking into account the, the dispersion mm-hmm. on the historical context mm-hmm. and everything, I just wonder how much that fits in with the moving into like the depth of the demonic aspect mm-hmm. of the, the world, the termed world. Right. Absolutely, yeah. So Todd is, is talking about the connection earlier in chapter two. We talked about how. Um, the rich here um, that the James's readers are tempted to show partiality towards are probably um, wealthy Jews who have control and power because he talks about, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This is true of the Jews at that time who had not become Christians. Um, they had wealth and power and they were indeed blaspheming the name of Jesus. They were indeed dragging Christians into court um, and oppressing them. Um, and so, yeah, I think, and, and certainly there's demonic activity in that, right? Um, um, we know, even you look at the ministry of Israel, that um, there are demons everywhere, basically. Jesus goes around and there are demons. Um, um, and and this, this is a kind of demonic wisdom that, that they're um, seeing. And I think that what is happening here in chapter 4 is there's a temptation to imitate that kind of wisdom. And a, a temptation to, to, to say, okay, well, the Jews seem to be doing pretty well. Remember at this time... All right, when this was written, um, uh, Jesus had been crucified. 
Um, Stephen had been killed. Um, other Christian leaders were being killed. Um, uh, the, the Jewish temple was established. Sacrifices were happening every day, um, every, every week. Um, the Jewish festivals were continuing. Um, there was wealth in Israel. Um, and the Christians are, at this point, are the, the barely even a minority. Like, you know, like they just barely exist. And their message is they're going around saying, the temple doesn't matter anymore because Jesus died for your sins, right? Um, we know that animals are still being offered at the, at, at the temple, but that's meaningless now, right? This, this is a hard thing to, to hold in contrast. Um, and there, there was certainly would have been a temptation to sort of be imitative of, um, say, why is God continuing to apparently still bless these people of Israel who have crucified the Messiah and are now oppressing us? And they're doing well, right? They're, they're still sitting pretty in Jerusalem with power and wealth and authority, and we're on the fringes of society. Um, how, does this, how does this square with one another? I think that's actually what we're seeing here in verse 4. Um, James, I'm uh, sorry, in chapter 4. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, right? There's this internal battle. You desire and so you do not have, so you murder. This is a really interesting statement that James makes here. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. What is, a, what is, what is going to be the desire of a, a persecuted um, Christian community um, in this situation? What are they going to want? Revenge or protection, or safety, right? They're going to want not to have their enemies kicking down their doors and dragging them into court, taking their homes, right? That's a fair thing to want, I think we can all say, right? Um, They desire it, they don't have it, they don't have that kind of peace and protection, so then what do they do? James says, so you murder. It's a really interesting statement. I mean, it may be that he's referring back here to um, the words of Jesus, and I mean, Jesus talks about anger and how, you know, anger is, is something that is in your heart, can be really um, a violent thing. He doesn't actually say it's murder itself, but he does, he does definitely up the ante in terms of your internal heart attitude towards others. So maybe James is just referring to some kind of, you know, internal heart thing that is going on. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Or maybe, I mean, let's just be honest, Christians have murdered people before, right? This is not, we're not immune from violence as believers, Maybe there's been some murder. Maybe, you know, there has been some people who have come up and, and taken um, things into their own, matters into their own hands. And, and when, you know, um, Saul and his cronies are coming, um, knocking on doors, they get out their swords and fight, right? I mean, I, I think that's a possibility. Part of the reason we know it's a possibility is because it happened within Jesus' disciples, right, on the night that he was arrested, you know? Uh, remember that, that as the soldiers came, um, one of those, um, probably Peter, um, pulled out his sword and, and chopped off the ear um, of, of the temple servant. And, and what did Jesus say about that? Don't do that, right? Why should you not do that? Because those who live by the sword will perish by the sword, right? This is, uh, and we're going to see, this kind of worldly wisdom that you can defeat your enemies with, with um, swords, um, with spears. Um, but I think, I mean, remember, even, even in the, um, you know, there was Simon the Zealot, the other Simon, um, Simon the Zealot, there was zealotry within even the apostles. Um, this, and this was a constant temptation for, for the Jews at this time. It actually would be the temptation that would finally lead to their downfall in 68 to 70 AD, which is that 
that God would deliver them through violence. He would deliver them from Rome through violence. And that was something that was just in the air. That's what zealotry was all about, that, that the will of God was, was for Israel to arm itself and have a kind of guerrilla warfare, and they would drive off the Roman centurions, and God would act. If they just you know, pushed the envelope enough, God would show up, and he would deliver them um, from Rome. And that's what the wisdom that was at the time was operating. And, and, and you know, let's be honest, this is not just back then, right? This is, um, we all are tempted to think about you know, violence as a way to ensure power and a way to ensure authority. And we see this all over the world today. And of course, this would ultimately lead to the downfall of the Jews, Jewish nation, um, when they would finally rebel for the last time against the Roman Empire in the late 60s. Right? They had all their swords and their weapons and their spears, and they thought God would show up. And then the Romans came a knocking, and what happened? Did God show up? He did not show up. Right? They kicked down the walls of the city, and they burned it and they burned the temple, and that was it. That was basically the end of, of the Jewish nation at that time, and certainly the end of their religious system. Um, so it's, it's just interesting that, that I think it's very, at least very possible, and maybe, maybe James is just talking about something that's internal and metaphorical, but I think it's very possible he's talking about something real that's a temptation to the Christian community here. <clears throat> These are the waters they are swimming in, um, where violence may be something that is licit and blessed by God. Um, he says, you covet and do not obtain, so you fight and you quarrel, right? They, may be there, they might be coveting, I mean, who knows, but it's very possible they're coveting peace. They're coveting um, security and protection. You do not have, then he says, because you do not ask. What does that remind you of? You do not have because you do not ask. Who said things similar to that? Jesus, I think someone said, which is always a good answer on Sunday morning, right? Jesus did say things like that, right? He said, what did he say about asking? If you ask in Matthew, what will you get? You will receive, right? If you knock, the door will be open. Seek and you will find, right? Um, that the Father gives good gifts. This is who he is. I think James is setting up a contrast here, and he's saying basically, um, you, don't ask, you don't have because you don't ask, right? Um, instead of going to the Lord and depending on him and his sustenance and his strength, making him your refuge, you're trying to make yourself your refuge, um, and that is not going to lead to good places. You don't have because you do not ask, because you're not going to the Lord. I think it's worth just thinking for a moment about our own lives, right? Maybe we're not tempted to actually be physically violent with someone, um, but all of us are tempted um, to want to acquire and achieve things that we do not have, right? Um, that we want, you desire, and you do not have. You covet and cannot obtain, right? That's a pretty normal situation for most of us, I think. We have things we desire, we don't have. We have things we covet and cannot obtain. So now the question is, what do we do with that desire? And sometimes those things that we desire are good things, right? They're not bad things, they're good things. It's not bad to want to prosper and do well. It's not bad to want other people to notice our work and approve of it. It's not bad for us to want to be friends with people or whatever it might be. Have a spouse, you know, whatever that thing is that you want, that you don't have, that you desire, but you cannot obtain. Now the question is, what do you do about it? And I think what James is saying is there are two paths, right? There's the path of asking the Lord, depending upon Him, waiting for His timing. And then there's the path of taking matters into your own hands and figure out whatever it is you can do to make that thing that you want more likely to happen, even if it means destroying someone else, right? Even if it means being violent, Maybe not violent physically, but violent in terms of our intentions, in terms of our activities. Um, 
And I think James is pointing out something about the human heart, that you can't really do something in the middle. It's going to be one or the other. Either you're going to trust in the Lord, and you're going to wait patiently for Him, or you're going to take matters in your own hands. And when humans take matters in their own hands, it always ends in bloodshed. Always. Like, you, that's the story of the Scriptures, right? I mean, you read Genesis. Genesis is violent, you know? And I think it's just a picture of this is what happens when human beings go down this path of darkness and of sin and take matters into their own hands. It ends in bloodshed. Um, and maybe we can restrain ourselves enough to not actually cause someone to spill their blood, but we can hurt people, right? We can destroy them. Um, we can destroy our children. We can destroy our spouses. We can destroy people at work, whatever it might be, if they get in our way. And I think that's, a, that's what James is talking about here. Does that make sense? I think that's, those two paths is really interesting. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Um, you adulterous people, which is a fascinating thing. Who in the Old Testament is called adulterous again and again? Why are they called adulterous? Right. They're idolatrous, right? And, you know, those gods that they're worshiping, the, the Baal and the, you know, Molech, and these are all essentially demons that they're worshiping, right? And that, that's what's happening in the Old Testament. They're giving themselves over to demonic worship. Um, these are not just like, you know, sort of empty rocks and stones, but there's actually demonic, demonic spiritual activity that is attractive. Um, and I think that's, inter- that's a connection here. He's calling them adulterous in a similar way to how Israel is adulterous in the Old Testament, because when they imitate the world, when they imitate um, their Jewish enemies and oppressors, um, they are our acting according to a wisdom that is demonic, right? As he just said a few verses earlier. This is a demonic way of living. This is, this is the natural, logical conclusion of the wisdom of Satan, is to destroy those who get in the way of what you want, right? There's always someone in the way of what we want, right? Either they have it, or they're next in line before us, and we can either be patient and wait, or we can destroy them. And James is saying, if you do that, if you go the way of destruction, that is actually, you're giving yourself over to something. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I think that's a really fascinating phrase. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, James says. This is not, often we think about worldliness, right, as, as uh, you know, drinking wine or, or dancing or, or whatever, you know, I don't know. Fill in the blank for what that might be. Um, this is not the kind of worldliness James is talking about here, right? What kind of worldliness is James talking about here? What does it mean in this context to be friends with the world? Yeah, jealous and ambitious, to give over to that worldly wisdom, right? Because this is how the world says, right? Who's going to help you according to the world? Nobody, right? You better help yourself, you know? Um, God helps them, who, those who help themselves, right? Isn't that in the Bible somewhere or something? It's certainly on some offices out there. Um, and I think that that's, that's what he's talking about here. That's what friendship the world here is. It's giving in to a kind of worldly understanding of the way in which um, it works to get ahead, to advance, to have the kind of life you want. I think it's really interesting that that's, that's what James is talking about. He's talking about people who want a certain kind of life and can't achieve it. Like, that's all of us, Right? Don't we all want a certain kind of life and we can't fully get there with our own two hands? And so then we have to figure out what do we do with that tension? 
And James is saying there's a kind of worldly wisdom that is destruction and violence ultimately, ultimately you destroy yourself, or there's patience. There's, and remember, this is the whole theme of the book, right? How does it start? Um, be steadfast and patient, right? Know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Uh, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Um, this is the way in which, this is, these are the ways that James is really trying to shape us in terms of what it is to be wise. There's the way of patience and steadfastness, there's the, which is the way of Jesus, or there's the way of, you know, uh, Peter in the garden. The guy comes to you with a sword, you chop up his ear, right? You go after what you want um, with your own strength, your own power. Yes, Eric. That's right, and that's that's a great point. That's what the Lord is is sees that again and again. They make alliances with Egypt or with Babylon. Um, with other nations, and the Lord is always um, deeply offended by this and sees it as a betrayal of himself because they're putting their trust in princes and other kingdoms um, to fight their battles for them instead of himself. Yeah, the, sure. Yeah, and it's careful we're not saying, we're not saying that, you know, political behavior is wrong for Christians or something, right? Politics is just a feature of life. That's, what we are saying is that there is a worldly way of doing politics, which is basically just the, um, the, the process of, of, you know, acquiring power and using power. Um, and then there's a Christian way, there's a biblical way, there's a wise way, a truly wis- a wisdom that comes from the Spirit. And these are different things. Um, so we're not saying that it's, it's wrong for Christians to be in power, to have authority, or to quote-unquote get ahead, um, to prosper in their work, in their lives. Um, but we are saying there are different paths to achieving those things. And it's really important that you pick the right path. Um, yeah, Donna. Yeah. Fair, yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good clarification. I'm certainly not saying that as Christians we should not go after the things that we desire. Um, if they're good things, um, I think we should. But I think we do so with a, with a different kind of um, grip on those things, right? We go after them knowing that um, in the end, um, no matter what happens the rest of our lives, um, on the last day our bodies will be raised from the dead and we will live with Jesus for eternity in the new heavens and new earth, right? It's going to work out pretty well, you know? Even if I never get that job or I never get that spouse or I never get that whatever it is, that I want, even if it's a good thing. So we go after it with a kind of contentment that is 
based in trusting in God's promises, and we do so in a way that is not motivated by fear or anger or bitterness or um, the kind of jealousy that James talks about here, that kind of selfish ambition, you know. Um, so I think, I think it enables us to engage with those things that we desire in a way where they don't become essentially gods to us, right? And we kind of bow down and give ourselves over to them and do whatever it takes. We, we can sit back and try. I mean, we, not sit, sit back's not the right word. We, we can lean into those things, but do so in a way where we're not controlled by them, I think, um, by those desires that we have. Yeah, Aaron. <coughs> Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should say, if the Lord wills, I'll go to this and this city on such and such a day. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Todd. That's true. I agree with that. Yeah, that context is really important. And he's going to refer to, um, in chapter 5, yeah, that, um, that the rich, quote-unquote, in 5, 1 through 6, are really the, the powerful Jewish nation at the time and those who have power. And they, they're the ones who have murdered and condemned the righteous person, right? Um, and that's right, that there is something especially poignant about this temptation in this context because of that that they're wanting to imitate those who are oppressing them and even maybe have some kind of alliance or come to peace or that kind of thing. One, one last one, and we're going to try to move through the rest. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's this. There's a spectrum of persecution. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would say, and I want to continue to move because we just have a few minutes left. That I would say is that uh, we should be very. We, we. I think we know this when we experience suffering in our own life. When you suffer. Um, at times at least, your, your capacity for self-reflection and awareness about, you sort of allow yourself to get away with things sometimes that you wouldn't normally. Does that make sense? All this bad stuff is happening to me. Now there's a little bit of freedom for me to, if I, if I want to be um, jealous or, or, or bitter, then, well, I kind of deserve that, right? Because all this stuff's been taken away from me. Um, and so I do think that James is, a, is addressing a really particular temptation that exists for people who are suffering in, in substantial ways. So it's something to think about at least, right? Um, all right, so just to move through here quickly, um, the good news here is that James, even though this friendship with the world is happening and these things are happening in this community, um, James says, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit 
that he has made to dwell in us. I think that's a really beautiful picture of what the Lord, how the Lord responds when we're caught in sin. He yearns jealousy for the spirit that dwells in us, right? We believe as Christians that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, that the Spirit has actually united us to the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the bond of that union. And when we wander away um, from the path of Christ, from the way of the cross, and to the friendship with the world and the kind of demonic wisdom, what happens? How does God respond to that? He has a jealousy, right? He yearns jealousy for the Spirit, His Spirit, that He has caused to dwell in us. And He brings us back. That's what James is talking about here. Uh, he gives more grace, but he gives more grace, right? Even for Christians who should know better, who have the spirit of the living God dwelling in them, that give themselves over to worldly wisdom and demonic kind of activity in, in this particular way. Um, the Lord gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a, I mean, this is a great passage to meditate on when you know that you're in some kind of sin, Right? And we get in places in life where we know this, right? We're doing something that we know is wrong. We're, it's habituated in some way in our life, and we keep doing it over and over again. This is a great passage to meditate on. It's right up there with Psalm 51, I think, as we think about what it looks like to, to repent and to come to God in our sin. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit to Him, right? Really acknowledge that, that He is the Lord, that you are, you, what you're doing is against His law. Um, submit yourselves to him. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right? Acknowledge the true source. This is, you know, a lot of times we like to play nice with our sin, right? It's, you know, it's not that bad. Most people do this, et cetera, et cetera, whatever we might say. But James is saying the devil is involved here, right? This is satanic. This is a demonic thing that you're trapped in. Uh, and it leads to um, the places the devil leads you in his rebellion, right? Resist the devil, he will flee to you. Draw near to God. There's this wonderful promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. As you draw near to him in humility and submission and resistance to the devil and desire to put those things away. What we're talking about here is repentance, basically, right? That's what this is talking about. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Remember all throughout the Old Testament, um, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands, right? a pure heart. Um, this, is, this is something that, you know, he's not just about washing your hands, he's talking about your hands as a sort of symbol of your whole self, what you do with your body. Cleanse your hands, your sinners. Put that sin away. Walk away from it. Leave it. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. There he's referring to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, right? I mean, let's be very clear, it's only the pure in heart who shall see God, um, it's, and, and this kind of purity is what we need to constantly be pushing back into with the Lord. That's why we confess our sins every week, because we need to. So we need to be made pure by the Lord. Be wretched and mourn and weep. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a command about how we should feel about our sin. We should be wretched and mourn and weep over the things that we do, the thoughts that we have, the intentions of our hearts. Um, this is a, a right kind of wisdom. And it connects to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, right? They shall be comforted. And part of that mourning that Jesus is talking about there is mourning over our sin, not just about ways that people sin against us, but ways that we sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Again, it fits with that whole emphasis of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Um, I think it's important just to see this, that James is not simply pointing out the, the danger of the temptations that his readers are experiencing. He's also showing them a path uh, forward, a path back to God, a path of repentance, a path away from the world, away from friendship with the world and back to friendship with God. And that, that, even that whole category of friendship, that's something that's deep and intimate. It's not just, I don't, we, we don't think about friendship as deeply, I think, as remember that Jesus talked to his disciples and says, I no longer call you servants, but friends, right? This is a, it's a major thing um, to give yourself intimately. Um, and that, that's what he's talking about here, this, this pattern that we have. We, when we fall astray, this is the pattern back. This is the way back. There's no other way back than humility, than wretchedness, than mourning, um, really acknowledging our sins and lamenting those things. But then there's this promise, right? There's actually two promises here, right? Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And then there's humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And that comes right out of the promises of Jesus. Um, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And of course, ultimately he's talking about himself, right? He humbles himself, and then he is lifted up. And we see that pattern um, in his life, and we, we imitate it in ours. Um, even though, you know, he's humbling himself because of our sin, we're humbling ourselves because of, because of our sin, right? Not because of um, something someone else has done. Any questions about any of that before we wrap up here? The meekness of wisdom. It's the humility to acknowledge who we are before God. Right? To not um, try to acquire the things that we want purely by our own hands, um, making them into some sort of objects of desire that can fulfill all our needs and make us happy. Right? We desire, but we don't desire in that way. We don't Go after things in that manner. Um, we trust in the Lord. We trust in His provision for us, that He is going to give us good things. Um, he really is. Um, and we can be patient because of that. And when we fall, when we fail, when we um, give ourselves over to demonic and earthly wisdom, when we give ourselves over to bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, um, it's the meekness of wisdom that leads us to repentance, to confession, to humility, to submission before God. Um, and there's a promise there. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. When we draw near to him, he draws near to us. When we humble ourselves, he will exalt us. That's good news. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this good news and the scriptures, the way in which James's words, I think, um, really open our hearts and force us to look at some things that are are hard to see, perhaps, um, about the way in which we live and the temptations we have. But Lord, I pray also that um, what James says here would be a comfort to us, that we would grow in our self-awareness and our wisdom, our knowledge of our own hearts. We would grow in meekness of wisdom, ultimately, in our submission to you and our desire um, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, um, to be humbled, even as he was humbled, that we might also be exalted. We pray it in his name. Amen.